Dress, the history of fashion, is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, Cassidy Zachary. And April Callahan. Dress listeners, Angela Taylor of the New York Times would like to let you know that, quote, fun rather than value seems to be fashion's battle cry. And one result is that clothes that used to wear like iron now wear like paper, end quote. And no, Angela was not talking about someone's purchases from H&M or their latest Shane haul that often fall apart after a couple of wearings. Rather, Angela put these words to page more than 50 years ago in 1966, and she was referencing the nascent fast and furious and very real fad of just that paper fashions. Cass, the uh, 1960s are actually one of your very favorite areas of expertise as a fashion historian. Paper dresses of the era, I'm curious, love them or hate them? I love them. I mean, I love them as cultural and historical artifacts. They're really fun. I, of course, don't love them for their fast fashion status, but they really are such potent markers of the 1960s fashion revolution that really upended so many sartorial and social norms of the period. So, Mm -hmm. so, so fun for today's conversation with our guest, Helen Jean, who joins us to discuss her exhibition, Generation Paper, Fast Fashion of the 1960s, which is on view now at the Phoenix Art Museum in Arizona. And the show features more than 80 examples of paper garments and accessories, which is really a rare treat for sure because these garments were created to be disposable and most simply were tossed into the trash once they had served their purpose a time or two. And the fact that the Phoenix Art Museum has this large collection of pristine paper garments is exceptionally special and thanks largely to donations by collectors Kelly Elman and Gail and Steven Reinberg. Very groovy, baby. (laughs) Helen, welcome to Dressed. Helen, a very warm welcome to Dressed. Thank you, April. I'm delighted to be here. Yeah, we're delighted to have you. And before we delve into our topic today, I'd love to ask you a bit about your background. Um, This is a question that we do pose to our guests not infrequently. And you and I have actually never had the fortune to meet until today. So I'm curious about your background right alongside our listeners. Would you tell us a little bit about your trajectory in becoming a fashion historian and also what led you to the Phoenix Museum of Art? Sure. I've been very fortunate to work with some really incredible and inspiring women all along the way. So I started first at Stevens College in Columbia, Missouri, the second oldest women's college in the country, and um, worked under Monica McMurray. She was uh, the dean of the program and we had a day in class where her childcare fell through and she was teaching pad stitching and had a baby in her arm, a bottle under her chin, and was pad stitching to four students. And it just <laughs> opened up my brain to what, first of all, what you have to do as a woman, as a professional, to have it all. And then to see what having it all really looks like. And it's sacrifice that it was so much warmth and so much compassion. And it just, it lit a fire in me to really understand and appreciate the sacrifices and the rewards of really pursuing an academic career. Mm-hmm. So I uh, had the great fortune then to work um, at the Rose Theater in o- Omaha, Nebraska, to work in uh, their costume shop under Sherry Gertis as the shop manager in there building giant uh, animal costumes and fat suits and and a, a million toy soldiers, um, but learning how to uh, really create large, incredible productions in small budgets and, and uh, really to draw creativity out of every single morsel that you can come across. Mm-hmm. Did my graduate work at the University of Nebraska in Lincoln, where I got to really dig my teeth in at the um, International Quilt Study Center. Worked with Dr. Cruz there and many other incredible instructors. Um, and I was actually in the 
theater program for my master's studies, but it was taking classes where, you know, I could wear my stilettos and we were looking on uh, doing fiber microscopies and, and, and pulling out the, the microscopes. And it just brought those worlds together of, of research and academia, but also the creativity and the storytelling. Mm-hmm. And it was that connection of how clothing can, how it is such an important vessel of where we have been, what we've done along the way, what we've learned, the struggles that we've had, and then also where we're going. And that's very much modern dress projecting for the future. Mm-hmm. So the University of Nebraska-Lincoln really opened up that understanding for me of that overlap in history, storytelling, and um, the scientific component to discovering the history of textiles. And that was so very, very exciting. And that's a whole vein or study of conservation and mm-hmm. storage and, um, you know, the, the the science around all of that. So I finished at uh, UNL and had the great fortune to spend one summer at the Santa Fe Opera, which was a career bucket list for me from early on. And I got to be a, a part of a uh, costume shop of about 80 different people and just contributed a small amount and had one of my biggest screw ups in that costume shop where I was just not quite paying attention. And I was the cutter and I cut the hem off a little bit too much on this skirt. We recut the whole skirt. I cried <laughs> that whole night. It just, but it was one of the most important lessons. And it was a lesson that I carried over into the classroom when I was an educator years later at the Art Institute of Phoenix. And I could share those moments of, oh, you know, I, I had this terrible mistake and this was how we had to fix it. And this is what it cost our team. And this was how, you know, I've carried it with me for 20 years. And, um, but that's, it's those mistakes and those moments that, you know, really drive those lessons home of, of focus and and uh, careful planning when you're in a costume shop. But I had the great fortune of joining the team at Phoenix Art Museum in 2007 and uh, joined as the curatorial assistant to um, an incredibly talented curator at the time, uh, Danita Sewell. Yes, we all know and love Danita. Hello, oh, Danita. And, uh, <laughs> the first show I ever got to work on with Danita was Graffiti Art and Fashion. And it just blew my mind, blew my mind. Nobody else was doing conversations like that. It, it just was uh, so smart and so cutting edge. And so I got to do over a dozen uh, exhibitions uh, su- supporting Danita's vision over those six uh, different years, uh, left to teach at different universities uh, and, and community colleges here in Arizona, spent lots of time at the Art Institute of Phoenix, and then had the great fortune of rejoining the museum in uh, the fall of 2019, I opened my first solo exhibition, uh, spring of 2020, and we were very lucky to be able to open it and celebrate that just before the pandemic closed everything down. And we were able to pivot and share a lot of that online through uh, video tours and um, some creative programming. And my fourth exhibition is up right now. And that's what we're here to talk about today. But I just, again, my, my career has been uh, very fortunate aligning with some real powerhouses uh, in this industry, in my opinion. Uh, so I've been very, very grateful for that experience. Oh, good. I love that. I love that story. And I love it so much that everybody's story, when we pose this question at the beginning of an episode, is always very different. And we, always, we say this again and again, there are many different entry points into this profession. And then even once you're inside the profession, as you pointed out, there are also many, many other kind of like sub-genres of being a fashion historian, like collection management, like conservation, like curatorial work. And it really takes all of those to put on an exhibition like we're going to talk about today. It does. It takes many hands. And what I find so very interesting about museum work is it's the similarity to uh, theater work in that we're telling a story we've got a cat especially for fashion we've got a cast of actors we've got a we've got our costumes we've got our story we've got our environment and so just a very similar effort mm-hmm, for sure 
Well, I first became familiar with the fashion collection at PMA when I was working on my master's thesis, which I wrote on Tina Leeser. And you have there in your collection this really wonderful yellow chiffon jumpsuit by her. I think it's from like 1954, 1955, something like that. I'm hoping that you could share a little bit with our listeners about the fashion and textile collection there at the museum. Sure. I know exactly the jumpsuit you're speaking of. It's this amazing electric chartreuse uh, green hostess set, the jumpsuit with the the skirted overlayer. It's just beautiful. Uh, Yeah, the collection was founded in 1966 by the Arizona Costume Institute, and it was organized to reflect the collecting practices at the Metropolitan Museum in New York. And the idea was to create a collection that would rival um, and follow that mission. And so over the many years since 1966, Arizona Costume Institute has very thoughtfully brought in membership and um, helped to bring in and steward um, gifts and donations over the years that have resulted in uh, a collection of over 9,000 objects men's, women's, and children's um, dating from the late 17th century to the present. We have uh, men's and women's court gown from the late 18th century. So we're, we're talking, you know, Marie Antoinette, these beautiful panniers and gorgeous figured silks. Wonderful uh, collection of the bustle silhouettes of the late 1800s. And you know, in, in, in all these different time periods, it's all the different layers that you have to have in order to create these specific silhouettes. So not only just these gorgeous uh, silk ensembles, but the corsets and the uh, corset linings and the, the petticoats and all of the understructure and the stockings and the shoes. And then the accessories to go with that, the champlains and the looking glasses and the lorgnettes and the purses. So majority is women's wear. A, a sizable collection of menswear, but certainly um, that is something that we will be continue to pursue and collect, and a much smaller collection of children's wear. We co- actively collect contemporary designers, mm-hmm. always keep an eye on what's happening in the world. I'm really excited about the show um, just this past August at the um, Santa Fe Indian Market. Um, mm-hmm. Just really inspired by a lot of the incredible surface design and that's going on on those runways. We were there. I don't know if you know that or not. I, I did get to go. That's marvelous. I have it on my calendar for next year. I just I screwed my calendar up, but that's great. I'd be excited to hear your opinions. Uh, and you have one of your, um, I saw one of your podcasts. I haven't yet listened to it. Yep, yep, yep. It was great. And speaking of the collection, correct me if I'm wrong, but it's my understanding that the majority, if not all of the garments, and other objects featured in your Generation Paper exhibition, which is what we're going to talk about here today, came from the museum's own collection. Is that correct? Yes. Everything you see in the galleries is uh, of the museum's collection, minus just a few things that we we may not finish a sessioning. Um, But almost every item that's on view in the galleries was a gift at one time from one person. It was... Oh, wow thoughtfully collected and stored over many decades by Kelly Elmet. If you visit the uh, Phoenix Art Museum and you come up to the Fashion Design Gallery, you'll see the Kelly Elman Fashion Design Gallery is on our wall. For decades, Kelly has searched for and collected objects for the fashion design collection here. Sometimes things that do relate specifically to exhibitions, but Kelly has a very deep and unique understanding of the value that fashion has to link us to our true history, Mm -hmm. to our better selves, to our connection to one another. And she understands very deeply the value of these pieces. And so she seeks them out and then she stores them and she has uh, very generously gifted them many, many times to the museum. But because she is so thoughtful about this process, Collections like these paper dresses arrived in near perfect condition. She purchased them in their original packaging and she never opened them. The self-control to do that is just <laughs> extraordinary. 
So she brought in two boxes. It was a show in a box of Mm -hmm. over 85 different paper objects. Majority paper dresses for women, some little girls' dresses, but that's not everything that was available. There were, you know, suits for men and all kinds of things, but this happened to be just such a wonderful collection of nearly perfect objects that allowed us to really do a survey of the variety of uh, ready-to-wear. You know, there's there's always going to be little little niches of, of, of specialty, but this is a, a wonderful overview of some of the key pieces, key manufacturers, key objects, key designs, and then just a good look at the entire trend uh, for the moment. Yeah, and, and this show is so much fun. It's just pure joy. It's fanciful. It's playful. So let's start at the very beginning. Who got this ball rolling? When do we start to see disposable paper fashions emerge into the marketplace? And who launched this rather novel concept? So this whole paper dress moment was started by Scott's Paper Company. Uh, Scott's Paper Company that you know today, still around. I think I just bought some paper towels from them recently. <laughs> Probably. And they this was created as a promotional um, to share a product that they had, DuraWeave, which is a cellulosic blend. It's got a nylon strip. Uh, and so that means it's got this very loosely woven, almost like a gauze-like material. And then it has paper pulp that's been packed around it and it's dried. So it, it feels like paper. It sounds papery but you can't tear it like a piece of paper. It's not rigid. It's very pliable. It's soft. It's much more akin to the interesting new packaging that you see in your holiday packaging when you're ordering off Amazon or whoever you're ordering from. It's Uh no longer the plastic, the styrofoam beads or just the puffs of air. There's all these new interesting kind of papery, synthetic layers. All of that originated right here. So it started with Scott's Paper Company, 1966. There is a promotional mailer. You can send in $1.25, 25 cents extra for postage. And you can pick from two dresses, the black and white off-art print or the red bandana print. And it's a very simple dress. It's an A-line, just two shoulder seams, two side seams. They had, you know, just clean finish, cut the shoulders. Sometimes then, you know, you could finish off the neck got a patch pocket sewn to the outside hip. Very, very (laughs) simple, simple sizing. And it's this very simple triangular shape. So it fits very easily on anybody. Now, this is a promotional. It's a gag. The idea is to get people's attention, to create a buzz. I mean, it's 1966. So this is a generation that's grown up with Annie's decoder ring with, you know, getting things in a cereal box, with, mm-hmm. you know, TV dinners. This is, you know, this is a generation that really exciting new things have happened in their childhood that hadn't really happened before. So we've just got this incredible new space-age technology, which is a funny thing to say now, but we have to put ourselves in the mindset of 1960s space-age, where, I mean, it's every day there's something new and extraordinary happening. So... It's just the perfect audience for a mail-in, momentary, exciting party gang. And that's really the idea here. Um, So Scott's paper launches it. Within six months, they've sold out of DuraWeave. Yes. That was going to be my next question for you. It's incredible. It's that I think that a lot of our listeners will be surprised to, to understand how quickly this trend took off. And it was a trend, and it was a rather short-lived moment in time. But I think you're probably going to tell us a little bit more about, like, the kind of, like, quantity in which these items were produced. Yeah, so this is such a short span of time. 1966 is when it begins. Our exhibition ends 1970. And, I mean, that's really the end of this trend. Paper dresses have happened in moments long before this. Paper, Paper dress balls and happened in Hartford, Connecticut since the 1930s. Paper dress, paper dress fancy moments have happened in the 17th and 18th century. But this is incredibly unique. This is a convergence of a paper and chemical companies, textile manufacturers, a paper printers, 
and then got clothing manufacturers. I mean, just all these interesting companies that hadn't necessarily worked together before. I mean, that you know, the paper and the the chemical companies really getting into this fashion industry. So it's a moment of of you know inter industry um, fantasy and play and an opportunity to. Uh, try these new materials in the fantasy playground of fashion where uh, anything is possible. So this begins in 1966. Within a couple months, they've blasted through all the Duraweave and other manufacturers are very fast to get in on this trend. The leading manufacturer, Mars of Asheville, they were lingerie and hosiery company in uh, Asheville, North Carolina. They were able to quickly pivot and uh, begin sewing on these very paper-like new materials. And by the time they were at the height of their production, they were uh, producing between 80 and 100,000 paper dresses a week. (laughs) They were the leading manufacturer and distributor. They were doing collaborations with Hallmark, with Curtis Candies, with AT&T, with a majority of the pieces in our, we have our, our exhibition is split between two galleries. One is very commercial and the other was by manufacturer and our very commercial pieces from, you know, the different industries that were involved. Majority of them were manufactured by Mars of Asheville. They were really the leading manufacturer. The Bayer family is still alive. Uh, Robert, Audie, and Jill. Robert um, managed the company. Jill, his wife, was the designer. They reached out to uh, wallpaper and wrapping paper printing companies, and that's who printed on this paper. And then they manufactured there in-house. And then their daughter, Jill, would uh, model a lot of the garments. So I've had the opportunity to speak with the family a couple times and just get some really interesting insight into these garments. And one of the most fascinating things for me, which is really not that surprising, but these were terribly uncomfortable wear. (laughs) And that truly is the demise of this entire fascinating fad. I mean, as much as we want to pin environmentalism, and that is a really critical part of this, these weren't terribly easy to recycle and people didn't recycle them. Because they weren't purely paper, right? No, they there, weren't there were all the, it's kind of this amalgamation of different layers depending on which product that you're talking about. Duraweave was not the only product on the market as well. There were a couple others that you might at some point mention by brand name. Yeah, we've got, uh, let's see, we've got Fibron, which was a favorite of Modemia and and Draper paper. Very similarly, it's got uh, a yarn component to it to create the structure and then a cellulosic pulp that's packed around it to create the paper-like surface. And it could be a sandwich. It could be, you know, the the, the fibrous bits could be laying on the top. The fibron uh, could have a woven internal structure. It also can have uh, just separate fibers that are just laid, kind of scattered shot throughout. Again, this was an opportunity for these chemical and paper companies to test some of these different um, formulas and uh, ways in which they would create and lay out the different materials and the different textiles. We've got um, K-Cell, which um, is similar to Fibron. It's thinner, it's more pliable. That was a favorite of Mars of Asheville. And then one of the leading textiles of this period was called Remay, and that was created by DuPont. And DuPont was a powerhouse in promoting their products. Um, So they actually hosted a ball where they compelled American fashion designers to create custom looks for the night (laughs) that different uh, New York socialites would wear in order to uh, really highlight the performance and fashion features of Rime, which they considered the closest in hand to chiffon. Now, you know, it's nowhere near chiffon, but when we're comparing the different textiles, it really is the most um, pliable, the most lamp you could drape it the most. So it's it's not a terribly far off claim. 
Yeah. And Rime actually was something that I was familiar with from childhood because my mom would still use it in sewing projects sometimes. So that was one where I was like, oh, I remember that from being a kid for sure. Certainly. And Rime, it looks, uh, for our viewers at home, Rime looks like a very thick dryer sheet. It's just a series of random fibers overlaid and a scattered pattern. And it can become thicker and thicker and thicker. And then you're getting into a material, you know, that we use as an understructure and tailoring or like Pellon uh, in costuming. So, you know, when we're thinking about these products in 1966, these products are everywhere you look right now today the ppe masks that we've all been using the last couple of years the full body suit different you know filter layers in your vacuum cleaner in your hepa system in your masks um certainly all of our protective equipment and we're not just talking fibrous textile like materials yes the exhibition is looking at paper but that's a misnomer paper is a great word people love that word the real word is non-woven because yes. we've got paper-like things. We've got metallic laminated things that are like that layer in your Valentine candy box. You know, we've got things that are um, uh, polyethylenes, polypropylenes that are, you know, uh, derived from oil. And they've got a heat, you know, they're, they're thermoplastics and they've got a heat set pattern. But that is part of the experimentation that's happening in this period. You know, Tyvek is part of this story. So, you know, all of these materials that we have today came through and were part of this fantasy playground of fashion and uh, paper chemical companies that happened at this time. Well, I want to touch back on something that you said earlier, because I think this probably perked many listeners' imaginations about these garments not being comfortable. You've kind of already touched on the main silhouette that we see the dresses in, at least, which is that A-line, kind of like 1960s shift dress. Everybody can imagine that in their mind. But there are examples of garments in the exhibition that push far beyond that in terms of like the exploration. So I guess I, I'm curious more about that comfort factor that you mentioned and then some of these other kind of silhouettes that we're seeing because I could see comfort in the context of those being more problematic probably. Sure. And then I just would preface that with saying, yes, the comfort is was part of its demise, but we all have things in our closet that are terribly uncomfortable and we hold on to them and mm -hmm. we wear it for, for whatever reason. It might be a corset, it might be a pair of shoes, it might be something, uh, you know, so it's just that there's always that interesting balance, but that was such a fascinating component to this. And again, it's not terribly surprising that these weren't very comfortable. So yes, the majority of silhouettes in the gallery is that simple A-line, but the really Really interesting ones are, uh, we've got a couple bikinis. Mm -hmm. Yes, people wore paper bikinis. Did they wear them swimming in the water? Of course not, because nobody can see you if you're in the water. And the whole point <laughs> is to be seen in this amazing paper bikini and then to tell everyone it's paper. Mm -hmm. um, and it's, it brings me to, to some of these fun quotes that we found as we were working on this. And we came across some actual um, women's wear daily staff reactions to the paper dress trend. And this was uh, printed in 1966. And one of them says, I felt like a sandwich wrapped in waxed paper. <laughs> and then another one says, I put it on. It's a body shaped dress and it was terrible. It takes every imprint of your body. And so just all of these really great, great quotes. But one of the funniest was the reaction to my paper dress. Can we rip it off? <laughs> and that was actually by six lively youngsters. But you know that those kinds of comments were just circling this trend all the time. Mm -hmm. um, but in the gallery, we've got bikinis. We've got rompers. We have a jumpsuit, a couple of dresses. Um, we have a series by uh, James Sterling Paper Company. Uh, James Sterling was the New York designer. And it has a full zipper up the back, tiered ruffles, uh, fully stitched bows. The I mean, fully stitched, like it's not just a strip of, fa of, of fabric that's been 
tied into a bow. It's a sewn into a tube, turned right side out, tied into a bow, stitched onto the dress. The zipper is top stitched. There's a hook and eye. These garments are cut and sewn and made to reflect the styles and the silhouettes of the time. There's collars, there's facing, there's there's uh, buttonholes, there's some faced and bound buttonholes, some of these. Now, again, the majority of these are uh, ready to wear just a couple quick seams. They're intended to sell for $1.50 to $5 at the drugstore, a few different department stores. But some designers were convinced this was the future, in particular, Elisa Dax, American fashion designer. And she created uh, identical garments. They had working functioning pockets, pocket flaps, facings, uh, working buttonholes, zippers, uh, belt loops, belts, all the different elements that you would fully expect in a fabric, traditional fabric garment mm-hmm. he had. And so her garments were hundreds of, of dollars. And I've got a great quote from, from Elisa Daggs. Elisa said, disposable clothes are here to stay. I've done so much traveling. I thought it would be good to have a dress to throw away. The demand is so high. It's a hard operation to set up. I'm now working on other disposable fabrics. But she also acknowledges this is not a cheap trend. Yes, they're disposable, but these are not cheap items. It takes a lot of uh, work on the back end to design and create, manufacture these at the level that she was creating. So she was very aware that it was a, a trend, you know, at her level, certainly intended for a, a more wealthy um, clientele. Um, but you could find these at Lord & Taylor, B. Altman, Gimbel's, um, and then certainly your corner drugstore, the Five and Dime. And then, of course, you could do your mail-in with uh, Scott's Paper Company. And then once the mail-in took off, you could mail in Dove soaps. You could uh, get the Dove soap dress. You could get the Curtis candies, and you could choose either your Butterfinger or your Baby Ruth dress. Campbell's Soups had a mail-in yes. for the Campbell's Super Dress. Um, Viking Kitchen Appliances, and you could get a dress that matched the kitchen carpet that they were promoting in 1967, if you can see that. <laughs> so there was, again, it was a, a moment of experimentation, but what resulted was an entire incredible public of walking billboards of these fascinating, brightly colored, graphic mini dresses that were promoting all these brand products. It was all product advertisement. I mean, if you think of Mad Men, we think about the show Mad Men, the ingenuity of marketing at the time. I mean, it, it's genius. It's absolutely genius. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, uh, and Elisa Daggs, actually, her work was so kind of like revered that she was commissioned by airlines to create airline flight attendant uniforms as well out of some of these paper-like products, yes? She did. Elisa Daggs uh, had a contract with TWA, Air India, and others where she created these wonderful air hostess uniforms. And uh, I mean, they were with the 1960s, so uh, mini skirts. And again, they're made of this flimsy, paperish, you know, non-woven material where, you know, we're on an airline with spilling drinks and all kinds of misfortunes could happen with paper garments. Um, but she did. She made, uh, for Air India, there was a paper sari that was complete with a choli, uh, which is a bodice. It had Velcro down the center front, gorgeous lime green and great purple print, and then a four-yard long sari that you would wrap uh, as traditional saris between four and nine yards. So, you know, great effort to to be as, you know, close to uh, approximate the real object as possible. But the trolley, it's uh, the edge of the neckline, neckline and the armhole and the, hip, the, the waist are all finished with a self-material. And so it comes with a pamphlet to instruct the wearer how to drape the sari. And then she also created a series for TWA's international flights. Uh, so they were then inspired by uh, different locations and would be worn by the first class air hostesses. So we have uh, the gold lame uh, uniform that was intended for the Paris flight. 
Oh, I love that so much. That's really wonderful. Well, and it wasn't only um, commercial airlines that sought out this like hip cachet of these quote unquote paper fashions during the late 1960s. Big name designers also jumped on this bandwagon. I would love to hear more about this. Well, and and it's interesting which designers thought this was really a, a, a lasting trend and which designers just weren't frankly that interested in it. As I stated earlier, um, DuPont had compelled American fashion designers, Jeffrey Bead, Oscar de la Renta, Bill Blass, Donald Brooks, Scazi, Jean-Louis, uh, Adele Simpson, and uh, Joe Copeland and others um, to create these one-off looks for the night. Um, but what I found so very interesting was the designers that didn't want to touch it. When you start to read <sighs> um, those interviews and you get different designers' reactions. So here we have, so Pierre Cardin. Of course, Pierre Cardin is going to be fascinated by this. So he says, uh, there could be a future for paper dresses. There is a formula to find, and I am looking for a manufacturer. So never want to ever give the cards away. Always to say, oh, I have something better. It works. Just wait. But then we hear Yves Saint Laurent saying, oh, I'm not interested in this material for clothes. I mean, just, <laughs> but what is this paper paper dress thing that's happening? Or Jeffrey Bean, who uh, said, you know, what was involved in the, uh, did create a custom look for the DuPont remade ball. But Jeffrey Bean's true opinion, who, and Bean was never shy to share his real opinion, was the paper dresses are for the wastebasket. I see no use for them no future for them. They're too disposable without any intrinsic value and they could never appeal to me because they fall into the category of synthetics and fads. And as we know, he was so committed to comfort and practicality and modernity in addition to luxury. Um, but these were all quotes pulled from Women's Wear Daily, 1966, December 6th. But just to see these, these designers uh, and their strong reaction to these uh, these trends is just really illuminating, I think. No, I, I think it's fascinating and equally fascinating some artists' reaction to this trend. Um, you have, of course, mentioned the Campbell Soup promotion. And I would argue that the Campbell Soup can paper dress is one of the most iconic of them all. And Andy Warhol had already introduced his Campbell Soup can series of paintings in 1962. So when Campbell's Soup Company came out with the dresses, it was definitely a nod to Warhol's work as well. Like if you were that with it customer, you would have gotten this reference. So Warhol wasn't necessarily involved in this promotion, but 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 there was kind of like a cultural linkage probably there that people understood. Another artist that started playing around with this was Harry Gordon. And I was hoping that you could tell us about his poster dresses that are featured in the exhibition. Yes. Well, really fast, um, the Campbell super dress. Can you imagine that happening today? I mean, Andy Warhol wasn't involved in that. Uh, the dress was clearly inspired by the work he was doing. And you're absolutely right. That is, if you were in the know, you knew that dress. You had that dress. You wore that dress. But... Um, they, you know, no, from what, as far as I know, there was not agreement. Andy Warhol was not involved in the production of that or the design of that at all. And so, you know, if you can imagine that happening today, the amount of legal uproar that would happen. Yeah. Um, but just, a fa you know, again, just a fascinating moment of marketing um, at its full, most grandiose, opportunistic moment, um, mm -hmm. taking some big risks. But I mean, it's so graphic and impactful. And, and again, that's the point of these, uh, is to really make a bold, bold statement. And it's just to be clear, there is a link between uh, Andy Warhol and a paper dress, and it's that he had signed a blank paper dress, and that was, uh, it's in the Mets collection, and it was a blank dress that was produced by Mars of Asheville, and you could purchase it and decorate it yourself. And it was a hostess gift and you could send it to people as an invitation. People could decorate and come to your party or whatever. So there is a dress apparently that Andy Warhol has signed and he signed as Salvador Dali um, and it's stamped fragile and it's in the, 
the Mets collection. So there is a link between Andy Warhol and a paper dress, but it is not the Campbell's super dress. So it's a fascinating little tidbit there. The Harry Gordon collection. So Harry Gordon, um, a British graphic designer, created the poster dress series. Uh, his wife was connected with Seventeen Magazine, and he had created these five really graphic black and white images. There's a cat. There's a shooting rocket. There's a hand with an Allen Ginsberg poem. There's a rose. And there was a portrait of Bob Dylan in the very first series. I think 50 of them were produced or something, something tiny like that. This series was produced first in, in the UK and released uh, in the United States within a year, and they just sold out immediately. Now, we have everything except the rocket ship, and we are still looking for the Bob Dylan, but the legend with the Bob Dylan dress is there's this wonderful uh, blip in an article that I read in Webster Daily from 1967, I think. And it's talking about how, you know, all eyes then that night were on, you know, it was an incredible night at the Italian opera, but all eyes were on the lady in the lobby wearing the paper dress, photo of Bob Dylan on, on the dress. And it's just such a fascinating moment where, you know, we're, we're out at, at night to ex enjoy one type of artwork. And another piece of artwork is drawn as all in, and it's this <laughs> bad of the paper dress with this iconic you know, pop culture figure. Um, but Bob Dylan reportedly wasn't really excited about having his his portrait on a picture on on a dress. And so they went ahead and pulled that. Um, but there there were some that were produced and made it out into the world. So we're going to keep manifesting that one. Um, it'll find yes. its way here someday. Well, maybe a listener has an edition of it and it will find its way to you. <laughs> Perhaps. But the idea with the poster dresses was that you would wear it a few times and then you, when you were done, you had this really graphic, exciting poster that you could hang on the wall. And so, and that was really a big part of this whole movement was, it wasn't just a one and done moment. This was, you engage with the company to get the dress. So you send in your mail and you, you get it in the mail, then you wear it. You're the hit of the party. You only get to wear it a couple times. So, so your choices are very special of where you're wearing this garment. Mm -hmm. You can iron it with a cool iron. Um, but you don't want to get it wet. And then when you're done, the packaging suggests uh, cut it up and use it as a rag, shred it and use it as belts, tie it on your purse, tie it into your hair, um, but to use it up in a, a variety of different ways. But one of the most important things to know about these dresses and the key reason why they couldn't get wet, and it's not that they would fall apart, is that they were doused in flame retardant. Ah, flammable products. And so they had to be fully, fully doused in order to make them wearable and safe. And this is the age of everyone smoking everywhere. And we have a really great uh, clip in our gallery. It's, it's uh, uh, one of the one of the comments is uh, uh, watch out with that cigarette, sir. This is Tinder, Kinder. And it's just a great reminder of just the danger of, of this fad and this trend. And we searched to try to find comments and news reports of, you know, any mishaps that had happened. And we truly didn't find any. What I did find was advice from our, you know, our local uh, fire department or our local fire chief reminds you do not smoke in your paper dresses. You know, so mm -hmm. you know things happened, but they were printing those salacious stories or I just haven't found them. But I know you have some really tenacious uh, listeners out there. So if anyone comes across any of those fascinating little tidbits, please send them my way. We're still looking. Paper dress mishaps. <laughs> <laughs> but what you do see on all of the, each of the, the dresses comes with some type of packaging and they have fun wordplay and they'll talk about um, you know, the paper caper dress or the wastebasket boutique. Um, and then they'll have suggestions of cut it shorter. Of course, it's the 60s. Make it a mini skirt. The scallop the hem. Zigzag the hem. A cut it shorter and make a belt. Add rhinestones. Stitch on a pocket. So mm -hmm. lots of interesting instructions to customize it. And then lots of reminders to not get it wet because it will ruin the flame retardant properties. Right. 
Right. I guess that would apply to um, backyard barbecues. Absolutely. And also pools. (laughs) One of my little favorite um, anecdotes that I learned about from your exhibition and in terms of the hostess gowns specifically, was how hostesses might incorporate their fashions into their the overall look of their entertaining occasion. Could you touch on this for us a little bit? Yes, I think this is such an interesting and clever marketing push. So you could have your hostess dress in a, a pattern, floral pattern per se, And you could have matching plates, cups, napkins, placemats, tablecloth, invitations, thank you notes. So Hallmark Cards from Kansas City, Missouri, they created hostess sets. Uh, Mars of Asheville was producing some of them. Seagram's Alcohol had their hostess set. So you really could create this entire environment where you are tied to the decor in your home. And I mean, when we're thinking about the 1960s, I mean, this is the age of your upholstery on your couch matches the 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 drapes. It matches, you know, the center rug. There is a, a very intentional coordinating of things. And for the 1960s housewife, that's status. I mean, let's not forget that all of our your listeners, I'm sure, understand that that the the many ways that we use clothing to communicate status. But as a hostess in the 1960s, your home, your look, your hair, your pearls. I mean, if that was the life that you led, those were your status symbols. So mm-hmm. offering something that coordinated your look with your decor was just such a clever, clever way to engage with that customer. Throughout the exhibition, we not only have the garments, but we also have the packaging that comes with it. And so you get to see the different ways the the manufacturers and designers were marketing to their customers. So um, you've got the very twiggy s uh, young teenager mini skirt, super cropped buzz hairstyle on some of them, and some of the other advertisements are very much for the hostess quaffed hair, the pearls, the jewelry, and um, much more demure poses. And then we've got children's wear. So that is much more cartoonish. And, you know, those dresses will, in fact, have cartoon imagery on them. We've got the Flintstones and Captain Kangaroo. But the advertisements are very, very specific. And the hostess sets were just such a clever, clever inclusion. It was really the invi- the coordinating invitations that got me. <laughs> And the thank you note that you can have a coordinating thank you note for a week later, it arrives in the mail and it reminds you of the fabulous party you went to. And so not only was there that set, but you could also order blank paper dresses that you could mail to your party guests so they could make a dress special for your party or that could be a craft at the party. There are children's um, make it yourself paper dress kits that you can order you can paint uh, paint by number paper dress sets that become your with your little paint kit. There was also paper jewelry where you would have pre-printed cards and you would punch out the different earrings or hair pieces and you would have instructions to fold them up. And then you have this wonderful, dynamic, bright colored jewelry that would coordinate with your paper outfit. And that's something that's really I don't think people quite expect when they come into the gallery is how very vivid and colorful all of these pieces are. Because they were so uh, well stored for so long, they weren't exposed to light and there's very, very minimal damage. And the colors have just stayed so very saturated there on the surface. So um, the conservation of the pieces was really fascinating. We work with an amazing uh, textile and uh, fashion conservator, uh, costume conservator here in Arizona, Martha Grimm. And she worked with almost every single object in the exhibition, um, had to unfold them. Um, Some of them, the effort was to try to get rid of some of the creases. Others had a little bit of color transfer from the paper or just from age. But in the gallery, we talk about the conservation process because she used weighted glasses and interleaved other synthetic materials, introduced slowly um, small amounts of humidity, and the results were just beautiful. And it's interesting because the different 
types of materials responded differently. So each object required a unique approach and um, a unique results were attained. And she did a beautiful job. It's it's really incredible. And of course, the Rime ones from DuPont, the ones that are very much like a dryer sheet, those came back to life, very sponge-like, the creases left almost entirely. But the ones that were more of the thermoplastic or much more paper-like, the earlier Dura weaves, those retained the creases much more like paper. But it, that's not a problem for us. That's part of the story. Uh, we just want to make sure they're not creased so hard and so rigid that that becomes injurious to the material itself. But because of some of the damage that had occurred over, you know, the many decades since these dresses were first manufactured, we have the opportunity in the gallery to show behind plexiglass a couple of garments that actually have some areas of pretty extreme degradation so that our audience can see into the inner layers, see that internal scrim and really understand better what the labels are talking about when we say it's a cellulose packed around a nylon scrim to really be able to see that and understand it. Um, it's really illuminating. Yeah, I mean, and the science and technology aspect of this story is is kind of its point of origin. So I think that's like a really crucial aspect to tell and to, for people to be able to see, which is which is really really great. I'm curious as to if you have any favorite pieces in the show. There is a knit paper dress. It is by Don't Speak Your Drink Out. I know. <laughs> so shocking. It's incredible. A knit paper dress. It was produced by Mars Bashville. It is not rolled paper tubes, but more an extruded paper noodle. Mm. Um, so it's a, a cellulosic pulp that's been mixed up. It's extruded out of a spinneret, kind of like your Play-Doh factory kitchen. And it's created in a yellow yarn and a blue yarn. And it's a single noodle-like yarn. It's not twisted at all, and it's not fibrous. So then this noodle yarn has been knitted into a traditional loop structure to create a striped mini dress. It has a cowl neck in the front. It's sleeveless. And it has a twice-turned a tube coming out of either side to create a tie at the back to create an all-pure waist to it. And it's stunning. It's in perfect condition. It was folded in an eight and a half by 11 package in its original plastic. And it came back with a sponginess. Um, the texture is uh, beautiful. Uh, we haven't seen any breakage in where the original folds were. It is very similar in hand to some of the fruit bags that you can get at the grocery store in your, you know, that, that are a mesh kind of a feel to that. And it's almost akin to a scrub, a scrubber in your kitchen sink. But it's, it's a, it has a paperness to it. Again, we only touch it with our gloves. We're very, you know, very mindful of that because we don't want to damage the objects. But we also have to be extra mindful with these particular garments because they have been so doused in the flame retardant. So we want to be protecting ourselves when we come in contact with them as well. But this dress um, is not only unique in that its structure is so very different from everything else in the gallery, but it too is stitched differently. It is stitched together with an overlock stitch on a serger. So it has that, you know, that, that finishing stitch where everything else is just stitched together. There's no finishing because they don't need to. Nothing's going to unravel, but this is knit. Um, and then it also has a, a cotton paper edging to finish off the cowl neck, the armholes. Uh, the hem is turned up and finished with a blind hemmer, <laughs> not by hand. So all of these extra steps. So this was a far more expensive dress. Um, and they did not produce many because it was very challenging to make. The machines didn't like sewing on the paper knit. So Mr. Bayer was sharing with me that they wanted to explore this textile. They had really gotten inspired by the different textiles that they were encountering um, there at Mars of Asheville. And so that was the purpose of going down this route, but that it was not a not a terribly popular one because, again, it was very, very uncomfortable. But you don't wear that dress to travel. You don't wear it for comfort. You're wearing it to show off at the event, to tell everyone, I am wearing a paper. This is this is the 
future of fashion. I am the only one in town. Mm-hmm. I'm the most forward-thinking 17-year-old at my high school. I mean, we've got the space race. We've got TV dinners. We've got, you know, new technology happening everywhere. You know, how could this not have exploded at the moment? It's the perfect audience at the perfect time. And it was a fad. This, this, you know, the hope was it would inspire things for the future, and it has. But it was never intended to survive forever in the form that it is in. That's not fashion. It came and it, it has inspired. And it'll be interesting to see what continues to come out of this, because there are designers that have continued to explore in this vein of non-woven textiles. Yeah. I was delighted to learn about the quote-unquote legacy of these paper dresses, right? And other looks from the 1960s in terms of the paper fashions and perhaps less about fashion, but arguably more essential, the main market for disposable paper garments today, you've mentioned briefly, which is PPE. Right. Yeah. The healthcare industry, extreme clothing needs. Um, We think about uh, disaster relief. Uh, The technology that's created here has such potential and opportunity to solve great, great problems. So if we're thinking, you know, locally, terrestrially for disaster relief, but if we're thinking far into the future, if we're thinking of manufacturing textiles in space, on other planets, we have to be able to mine ingredients Mm -hmm. from what we can take with us and what we can find. And what we can find is so far down the line. So it has to be, we have to be clever enough to recycle every bit of dust that we create. And we've we've already got technology where we're creating, I mean, quote unquote, leathers. I know there's, uh, you know, vegan leathers, and there's so many people in your audience are rolling their eyes right now. It's such a complicated term. But what it is, is this concept of taking materials, um, synthesizing them, working with them in a laboratory, but it allows us to create new products that offer different performance features. And when we're thinking about ingredients that we're going to have available to us in the future, we have to be very clever and very open-minded about what we can produce into textiles, what what we can use to produce textiles. When people see objects on the runway that look so out of this world and so outlandish and well, who would ever wear that? Well, if it's not intended for today, we're solving problems for the future sometimes. And some of these, we don't, you know, sometimes designers may not even, that may not even be part of their concept. They may not be realizing, you know, they might not realize that they're touching on something that's going to be that next um, springboard to the next iteration of design. But when we're looking at Isimiyaki, uh, it, it, his, um, a piece of cloth, and it's that continuous knit tube that is an entire ensemble that you then cut apart, tie some things together, and you are head to toe covered. I mean, that's disaster relief right there. That's clothing for the future. I mean, the, the possibilities are limitless with that. So I just think there's such a great opportunity here when we're really thinking about the future, which to me is what was so inspiring about this. Yes, it was colorful. Yes, it was exciting. Yes, it was a fascinating and sometimes ridiculously sounding fad. But at its core, this is fashion exploring science and technology getting to play in fashion's fantasy playground. It's just the most exciting thing ever. And that is what we do on Dressed. (laughs) These are the intersectionalities that we love to talk about. So, Helen, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for this joyous, riotous, super fun exhibition. I loved learning more about the paper fashions of the late 1960s, and I'm sure our listeners did too. Thank you so much. I hope you can come visit us sometime at Phoenix Star Museum. I would love to walk the galleries with you. And um, I hope your visitors can check us out online and come visit us sometime in Arizona. Yeah. And the exhibition is open until? December 4th, 2022. Great. You have a couple more months, dress listeners. Helen, thank you so much. Thank you, April. And thank you, dress. 
Helen, thank you so much for joining us to chat about your collection at the Phoenix Art Museum and your current exhibition, which is now in view through December 4th, 2022. And also thank you to more than one of our listeners who actually wrote to us suggesting that we cover the show. Listeners, your input suggestions and recommendations are always so very much appreciated. So keep them coming. That does it for us today, dress listeners. May you question what you consider disposable in your closet next time you get dressed. As Cass mentioned, we love and appreciate hearing from you. So if you would like to write to us, you can do so at dress at iheartmedia.com. You can also DM us on Instagram at dress underscore podcast, which is where we post images and reels accompanying each week's episodes. If you would like to take the time to rate and review us on your podcast listening platform of choice, we always also appreciate that. And just like we always appreciate our producers, Casey Pagram, Holly Fry, and everyone else at iHeartRadio that makes this show possible each week. We will catch you on Thursday with more dress. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows.